back to Uncertain Things, the podcast. Don't we do? Hi, Vanessa. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Oh, well, it's your it's your template. Yeah, but last oh. time I forgot to say uncertain things. Because <laughs> oh, I remembered to say hi. <laughs> it's in the title. Yeah, it is. Um, well, today we have Michael Smirconish. Mm-hmm. CNN, the Michael Smirconish, the illustrious Michael Smirconish of the Michael Smirconish show on Sirius XM POTUS and on the CNN show Smirconish. Mm-hmm. Which is where you met him. Which is where I met him as his underling. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kindly um, agreed to join us. We, When we scheduled the interview, it was before the events of this weekend. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was still with us. So that slightly changed um, the direction of the conversation, though not um, not not too far. We we avoided getting too much into the into the newsy. Maybe that's something that we should do at some point. But it felt it felt odd. The reason we called him is because part of Smirconish's brand is to be anti-partisan, to be right. uh, radically independent. And, and something that's I, severely lacking in in discourse today, <laughs> especially now. Um, mm-hmm. What I what I what it made me think as we tee up the interview with Michael gave me a moment to think about about RBG and what her you know everybody's talking about what they think her legacy should be for for the country, mm-hmm. and it it made me think that. If I had my way, I'd love for the legacy that actually sticks to be not just her path-breaking judicial work, towering intellect, all that should be there, but also her friendship with hmm. Antonin Scalia. The death of these two icons, these two paragons of opposing judicial ideologies, bookend the the first Trump presidency in in probably the most beautifully poetic <laughs> a literary device that you could have asked for. I just love thinking about how close they were as friends. It, there were so many stories about the the little notes they'd exchange, the flowers he'd get for her, the the trips mm-hmm. they'd go on together, the the operas they'd visit, how their Judicial truculence would be completely kept out of their mutual admiration. It's how you imagine a healthy society handling its differences. And again, they 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 weren't ideologically close. They weren't just nominally adversarial. They were as far apart in terms of their judicial perspective Mm -hmm. as it Mm -hmm. gets. And yet they weren't at each other's throat. They weren't constantly publicly tweeting at each other, whatever the early 90s (laughs) version of tweeting is. AOL chat. <laughs> I am. <ing. laughs> so I'm just, if you're going to model any social behavior based on the past six years, the paragons of the past yeah. six years, you, you should not be just Antonin Scalia, whose opinions I'm sure still get recited every full moon in the beer dungeons of the Cato Institute. And it should not just be RBG, whose continents is featured on many a merch Mm -hmm, it it should really it should really be both of them on your tote bag it should be a picture of the two of them walking hand in hand into the sunset of american (laughs) society and you're you're gonna paint this picture right for the episode art for this of course of course i'm gonna do it i'm (laughs) gonna in your in your spare time it's gonna be beautiful i i would commission that to the artists listening yeah all two of them Ron and Chen, if you're listening, the the fate of America is on you. This one's yeah. on you. <laughs> well, I think Michael, to to get back to our guest, yes, um, he he tries to embody this gravitas, this civic solidarity, the the good natured adversity. He. I think he, he tries to embody it in, in the way that he comports himself as a media personality, as a public servant in the past. And, and it, it comes through even in those small gestures of old world manners. He's, 
He's the Ralph Fiennes character in the Grand Budapest Hotel, still clinging to to a world that is getting away from him. Every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm the Israeli brood that comes from a culture that only knows how to sling um, manure at each other. And he's playing this Walter Cronkite character with his perfect diction and genteel bearing. And it's theater to some extent. But there is virtue in showing this kindness to your compatriots and especially to your opponents. I think one of the first political conversation that you and I had was me as an Israeli complimenting some of the performative aspects of the American Congress. And I said, you know, they don't live up to their ideals, but they pretend to. And there was a problem in that. It obviously creates some resentment when people recognize the dissonance, but there's also some deep value in that hypocrisy, in pretending to be part of something that is better than you can actually live up to. That was five, six years ago. And now after a first Trump term and with a fight to replace RBG, we are not even pretending anymore. This is just a naked battle for naked power with a lot of nakedness. <laughs> there, is no, there is no attempt to grapple at, at a higher standard. Maybe I'm just nostalgic or drunk, I don't know. I'm not saying our hope lies with Michael Smirkanish, but yeah, I mean, I was I was definitely struck in our conversation about how um, definitely a gentleman, definitely a thoughtful, reflective person, which I was not not expecting from a TV personality. Uh, my bias against TV is definitely exposed in this conversation. You were a total um, laudite, wringing your fist at <laughs> yesterday's battles. Like, oh, the, the television making kids stupid. No contraption. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, despite that, I was definitely very you know impressed with the conversation. Although I remain a bit skeptical that you know more like him are going to make it in media coming forward. I feel like he might be unfortunately a the exception that proves the rule. And now with the in the aftermath of RBG, you read from all those interviews with people who've been in in government for thirty, forty years, saying how those old models of behavior that were once seen as stony, rigid, are losing their grip. Meanwhile, Congressman Matt Gates goes around saying that if you don't, quote, make news, read, troll the libs, you're not governing, which is... <laughs> We're in a bad place. And on that note... Here's Michael Smirkonish. <laughs> Ninja. Michael, it's uh, it's awesome to have you here. As you know, I've had the pleasure of working on your CNN show for a number of years, and I learned a lot listening to you, working with your wonderful team there. And it's it's really exciting to have you on. So thank you. Thank you. My my pleasure. I have fond memories of all the great work that you did. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in uh, political commentary. Well, I actually just this past May celebrated my thirtieth year in talk radio. I got started very young, very early back in 1991, and uh, it's been 30 years that in one form or another, I've been in talk radio and uh, more recently in television. The involvement in both comes from my having had unique political experiences at an early age. So if you go way back to 1980, I was a newly minted Republican voter growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, very excited about GOP politics. And I had some unique things happen to me that included meeting Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush right before I cast my first presidential ballot. And one thing led to another. When I was a college student, I became an advance man for Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. So I was involved in planning the logistics of his personal appearances. I later served at age 29 in his administration in a sub-cabinet level position. I was a regional administrator in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so, you know, through a, a period of years, uh, while I was still the youngest person in the room, and those days are long over, um, I was very active in Republican politics on a local, state, and national level. And 
the visibility that came from that political involvement caused me to be invited as a guest on Philadelphia television and then Philadelphia radio. I was smitten with both and uh, always you know, had it in mind that if there were a career for me in media, uh, that's something I wanted to do. But I was becoming a lawyer and then practiced law for 10 years. And then there came a particular point where I had the opportunity to make this my career instead of an avocation, and I've never looked back. What got you smitten? Probably in part ego. I think, uh, you know, I, I found radio and television studios a bit intoxicating, and the idea that my viewpoints would be broadcast was, was something that was very um, attractive to me. I also thought I had a skill set for it. I, uh, you know, I've been a political junkie for a long, long time, so I frankly haven't had a shortage of things to say, and the combination of uh, interest in the subject matter, uh, as well as the desire to have my viewpoints heard, that's probably the root of it. My question when I heard that story was, what on earth did you say to Reagan that, like, that made their, the career path happen for you? It was funny because he was in, in the spring of 1980, he was making what was then an obligatory stop in the Philadelphia Italian market. If you were running for president, you'd come to Philadelphia and you'd walk a two or a three block stretch of old school vegetable stands and mm. meat and fish and so forth. And I skipped school with uh, a high school buddy because I had been given a tip that at a certain time, Ronald Reagan was going to walk into a meat market. And it's still there. It's called Esposito's Meat Market. And so with my buddy, Mike Stockle Jr., we stood inside with all of these butchers in, in white, almost like lab coats, you know. <laughs> and there was a great commotion outside. Obviously, Reagan had arrived. And my friend said to me, are you sure he's coming in here? Because there was nobody else inside Esposito's meat market except these two punks, you know, us and the butchers. And then lo and behold, the door opened up and in walked Ronald Reagan. And they, they had spelled out Reagan in sausage. And they presented it to him. And we were there. And we each had our pictures taken with a very gracious Ronald Reagan. Um, this probably, you know, predates Adam and Vanessa. <laughs> but there used to be something called a pocket Instamatic camera, a Kodak pocket Instamatic camera. And everybody in the 80s had one. It took 110 film. And we passed the pocket Instamatic camera between us and had our pictures taken, but we didn't bring the flash. And the no. picture turned out really poor. Uh, and I was so bummed when it came back from the developer. But luckily, I had another chance because I met him a few months later and, and had this great picture that I still cherish. That's an amazing story. And then it, so then it sounds like the law was, the turn to law was actually felt perhaps more obligatory than, than a passion. Is that right? Or am I, am I misreading your, your history? There? When I, when I was in high school and when I was in college, I was intent on a career in public service. And I don't know that I was keen on the law. It just seemed like it was the background that one needed. I mean, it's still the case where you've got more lawyers than any other profession in the Congress. Um, in my case, I ended up going to law school. And in my second year of law school, the state representative seat in the area where I was born and raised became a vacancy. And I ran for it uh, and lost in a Republican primary. Uh, but it was, a, uh, it was a wonderful learning experience for me. Nonetheless, I, I, I don't regret running and I don't regret losing. I was 23 years old at the time. And it was just an extraordinary experience. Just as a side question, what, what do you feel about the fact that it's kind of still the obligatory path for public service to go through the law? I Famously, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a refrain about this, or a rant, I should say, saying that you know, we need more engineers, we need more people of science, we need more people of all walks of life in politics, and yet it's still the, the legalistic-minded that, that end up in public service. So I delivered a commencement address in the midst of the pandemic. I had to do it virtually at the Philadelphia College of Science. And my whole commencement address was geared toward telling these graduates that it was their time and they needed to be involved in the public debate. Here we are in the midst of a pandemic 
and decisions are being made by too many lawyers. And I was encouraging them to pursue careers in public service or to at least be involved in their local communities, because I think that's missing. And I think that we all benefit when our representatives are more diverse. So you started your career in the Republican establishment. But now, having, having spent a few years in your show, I know one of your recurring lines is you don't hold water to any party or to any leader. How, how did that political ideological evolution occur? Over a period of years, and uh, many factors drove it, I was, I think I would expre- express it this way. I was a very loyal Republican and Republican voter from 1980 uh, through 2008. I voted for Democrats along the way, but never in a presidential election. And in 2008, I broke ranks and I voted for Barack Obama. I remained a Republican for another two years, took me to 2010. And in 2010, I decided that I wasn't suited for the party or the party wasn't suited for me. And I became, in Pennsylvania, we, we call them non-affiliated voters. It's our version of an independent. But it was 2010 when I became an independent and I've remained so. Among the factors that drove me, um, the party had really become dominated, I thought, by an evangelical Christian wing, of which I was not one, no disrespect, but it's, it's not my thing. But the, the turning issue for me to compel me to vote for Obama in 2008 was actually 9-11 related. Uh, it was the hunt for bin Laden, and I'm on al-Zawahiri. I became convinced that the Bush administration, which I had supported twice, 2000 and 2004, was no longer prioritizing the hunt for bin Laden. And Senator Obama came on my radio program, and we had a very good conversation about whether he'd be willing to pursue bin Laden wherever he might find him, including Pakistan. And it was almost prescient because, bin Laden, uh, because Obama said that he would pursue bin Laden even if it meant disregarding Pakistan's sovereignty. And when he said that, it was controversial. John McCain, uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden all thought that he was foolish and naive to say that. He had said it to me. And look at what ended up happening. Obama gets elected. He finds uh, on his watch, we find uh, bin Laden, and they disregarded Pakistan's sovereignty and took him out, just like he said. He- This is a fascinating story because not only did you break rank from the party to which you belonged since, since your, your early days in politics, but also you ended up voting for Obama for... Probably not the reason mm-hmm. that galvanized most of right. these voters. Yes. I mean, it's, it's so true because people are always surprised when they hear me say that, that that was the turning issue. But people who listened to my radio program through those years, even if they didn't want to hear it, and many of them didn't, but there was no mistake as to what was causing the turn of my thinking. In 2005, I think it was, I was a guest of a Pentagon trip. To the Middle East, uh, traveled about 17,000 miles in the span of one week and met with American military leaders at the top of the command. And everywhere we would go, I was part of a very small group, you know, playing military tourist. Uh, everywhere we would go, I would grill the brass on what are we doing about the hunt for bin Laden? And they wanted to talk about Iraq. They wanted to talk about the whole notion of uh, you know, fighting them over there so we didn't have to fight them here at home, which was a big pitch at the time. And when I came home, I was, I was you know, uh, enamored with what I saw of American military power and commitment, but I was really disheartened that the mission was no longer finding the individuals responsible for killing 3,000 Americans. Um, and, and I think that kind of... commitment to the principles that you hold dear and also the willingness to be flexible and not not party loyal is a it's captured in the title of your uh, recent book clowns to the left of me jokers to the right um, which is a collection of your of your columns for, for the past uh, two decades now I have stuck and, in the middle with you in my head sorry <laughs> it's just playing <laughs> underneath. Uh, um, and 
and I think that's that's also why I really wanted to talk to you on 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 this podcast. Like we call it uncertain things. We we really value the ability to not be derailed mm-hmm. by the 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 cliche or the dogmas of of your of your of your party or your or, or your team and I think that's something that you still do very very strongly in in, in a time where it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to do that do you find it um, do you find the mood has changed in the in the tolerance to independent thinking politically I find Adam that I end up pissing off everybody <laughs> because they're so conditioned to hearing someone who's from the left someone who's from the right, They know by the media outlet that they go to what they're probably going to hear. And then I come along and in a particular segment, you remember, you know, the CNN clock in the span of an hour, I get really four or five segments of different subjects. And one of them, you might come away with the impression that I'm conservative. You might come away with the impression that I'm supportive of Donald Trump, which I don't regard myself as being. Uh, and in the very next segment, you, you may conclude that I'm some type of a, a doctrinaire liberal. Um, and, and so I end up catching heat. And, you know, we read those social media reactions in real time. I end up catching heat from, from both sides. It's okay. It comes with the territory. But what I want to say is I believe on balance – I'm actually closer to whatever contemporary thought might be than the ideologues. I think I, I, don't, I don't know people who see the world entirely through liberal or conservative lenses unless they are media personalities. Because when I'm leading my life, you know, when, when I'm grocery shopping, pumping gas, when I used to go to back to school nights with our kids, I, I would have conversations with people for whom, The issues are a mixed bag. They might be conservative on fiscal issues and progressive on social issues, but they don't line up neatly in those ideological boxes. And those are the people that I want to give voice to. And you, you enjoy some of the, uh, to some extent at least, the, the, some of the anger that you, that you strike with the, with the ideologues at the end of your show. I assume you still do it. You, you share the, the tweets that come at you doing the show, and they're usually full of rancor. True. Um, yeah, I don't know that I enjoy it, but I'm not going to shy away from it. And I, I don't think anybody's sitting at home wants to watch me respond to a tweet or a Facebook comment. that applauds me or agrees with me. So truly, we do put some of the most antagonistic ones on the screen. I don't see them in advance, and I react to them in real time. And, and sometimes that generates, I think, pretty good television, maybe sometimes not. We're bringing up television, what works on television. So I, I actually find it pretty fascinating that you've chosen television as, as a, a medium but for The medium that that you use to kind of get your perspectives across, um considering that in addition to writing of, and of radio. course in addition to writing and radio, but I think most people probably know you, Michael, from your television show and and to me, it seems pretty interesting because i I actively uh, forgive me, but I actively avoid television. It feels like the least partisan. Uh, or rather the most partisan place that I'm going to find my information. And I actively avoid it because I want to find those more nuanced conversations. So I'm curious how you feel about television as a, as a means of trying to get across uh, nonpartisan perspectives. Well, I guess the attraction of it is that I, I get to reach a lot of people who are global in a relatively short time period. And I, You know, the, the imprint, of, especially of, of that CNN um, brand and all the places it reaches is a great privilege for me. It, you probably get a different picture of me if you listen to me on television versus listen to me on radio. Radio mm-hmm. for me is more relaxed. Yeah. I can say um and ah <laughs> and I can have a pause and I can curse and I can, you know, I can do whatever I want to do on Sirius XM. CNN it's like it's it's rigid like all television it, you know here comes a six minute segment right and I'm trying to ask five different questions and put up a full screen and play a sound clip and so forth so it's it's much more structured is what I'm trying to say you're uh <laughs> If you're partisan about something for my impression it's it's about um, your your hometown and your home state 
And I'm just wondering how it is to talk to a national audience, but from such a rooted Pennsylvania perspective. Well, I had to move from doing you know, my program has been either in national syndication or reaching a national audience via Sirius XM for, let's say, in round numbers, 10 of my 30 years. So for two thirds of the time that I've been a radio person, it's been to a local audience, big station, but local audience. But content is content. It, you know, we're in very unique times with this election and now with this Supreme Court situation. But if we weren't in the midst of an election and we weren't trying to determine who should be on the Supreme Court, if there's a, a good story of interest in my backyard, even though I'm reaching people all over the country, I do it. Because I'm, my goal is compelling content. I want to bring compelling content to listeners. And it matters not to me where that story is from. I'm actually thinking that the 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 sort the localized perspective is is actually what gives your voice a more unique flavor and also a, a more a stronger more interesting perspective and one that aligns with a real silent calmer majority of the country well it wasn't set up this way with that goal in mind but my Sirius XM studio I have a standalone studio meaning it's only mine in the suburbs of Philadelphia and as you know I I deliver my CNN program on Saturdays from Philadelphia as well. For example, last Saturday, I anchored two hours the morning after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I, 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 it was really established this way as a matter of convenience for me because I'm holding down a couple of jobs and my wife and I have raised four kids and, and I don't you know, yearn to be in Washington or New York City. And that was why I kind of set up these platforms that are out of the mainstream of the media. But one of the unintended consequences is I think I'm not in the bubble. Right. I think I'm, I'm not caught up in whatever, you know, the group think might be of the dominant media. And that is to my advantage. So you've brought us to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I didn't expect that we'll be talking about this when we set up the interview, but here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your immediate thoughts? Well, my first reaction beyond honoring her legacy, and I, I guess I should say that even if disagreeing with her on different opinions that she wrote over 27 years on the court, I admire that she was such a, a diminutive, tiny figure who was, physically speaking, who was nevertheless a legal giant. Mm-hmm. And what an amazing life and career she led. I, I've, I've read a number of the obituaries written about her, and I, I knew a fair amount about her already because of uh, covering her over the years and some of the guests that I've had. But you know, here, here is an individual who, who graduates, who had gone to Harvard, then transferred to Columbia Law School from which she graduated, and couldn't get hired at a New York firm because she was the trifecta, Jewish, a mom, and obviously a female. And to think that that intellect would not have been seized upon because of discrimination in one form or another, that's really an amazing uh, thought that I have about her. Um, When I look at where we are now, I say to myself, and this was frankly my first reaction, and Friday night when news of her passing came, I had typed it into my Twitter account And I didn't hit the send key because I thought maybe it would be perceived in poor taste. People should be grieving, not analyzing, but it quickly got political. But what I was going to send out was an ugly election just became more so. I can't imagine what the next couple of uh, weeks hold, but it's not good. What were your... (laughs) Seeing the, the the reactions that are coming now, and on one hand, you see a willingness from the Republican Party to to completely admit to the to the lie of McConnell's move vis-a-vis uh, Mary Garland. On the other hand, you see a willingness on the Democratic Party to append norms of their own. Already, you're hearing calls for packing the courts, for um, reshaping the system, uh, basically taking institutional re- vengeance. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that there's plenty of hypocrisy to go around. 
I thought I'm, I'm at least consistent in how I look at it. Four years ago, I thought that Merrick Garland deserved a hearing and deserved a vote. And the idea that there was nine months on the clock, mm-hmm. he passed in, uh, Scalia passed in November, and that, that he wasn't going to be given the opportunity for uh, a hearing, I, I thought was, was outrageous. And I still think it was outrageous. And I, I can certainly understand Democrats who say, this is not fair. The standard that you Republicans gave us last time was that this close to an election, we shouldn't be moving on a nominee, uh, should apply now, if not more so, because now we're within 40 some days. And on the Democratic side, some of the the more politically contentious, tendentious suggestions about you know, adding more justices or, or, or creating term limits. Do you think that's something that deserves a serious hearing? I don't want that to happen. I, 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 hope, I hope we don't get to a point where, where we're now expanding the number of justices on the court. I'm, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I know that the Constitution doesn't require nine, but I'd hate to see us expand beyond nine. Because of the, the reasoning, the, cur- the current reasoning that, that drives Democrats to push for an expansion? Well, I don't, I don't, know, I don't, I don't know where it ends. I mean, it, so, okay, so now we're going to go to nine. Why, why don't we go to 37? Um, that's not the answer. The answer is for comity. That's not E-D-Y. It's committee, getting along, and for civility, and for, you know, respecting uh, the rules and the protocols of government and the Senate. Do you see this as a possibility, considering all the all the really bad incentives right now that are pushing both sides to become more and more entrenched? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I think it. I think it gets worse before it gets better. So I was going to go in a different direction, Adam, unless you want to stick on RBG a bit longer. Uh, no, no, I'm just, I'm just, just depressed. <laughs> but yeah, go, yeah, it's well. I mean, it's a depressing time, um, Michael. This is kind of what my where my my question is kind of going in that it it's a time where it doesn't feel like American values or what uh, we took to be American values are being upheld and I, I would hazard a guess from the work that you've done that you, you be- believe strongly that you know there's there is a reason why people love America why you love America and the ideals that it has represented um do you feel that those ideals and values are kind of in peril right now do we, do you, do you feel like they're gonna keep holding on and hold us through the, this this time I think we're in trouble and I think we got ourselves into trouble in the time period that I've been paying close attention, which is the last 30 years. And I think that there are many causes, many drivers of how we got where we are, but that at the top of my list are media influences. Mm-hmm. I think that the polarization of the media has led to a polarization of society. I'd like to think that there's still more that unites us than divides us, but you've got too many people not taking advantage of all the information choices that they have, relying on their preferred media outlets instead, and getting whipped into a frenzy by individuals whose objective is not good government, but mouse clicks, eyes on TV shows, and ears on radio shows. And until we begin changing the channel, we're not going to break free of that. Can you drill into that a little bit? What what kind of media behavior do you do you diagnose? I, I, I said that I recently celebrated my my thirtieth year in radio, and I was I was about to go out on a new speaking tour. The first couple of nights were sold out; tickets were about to go on sale across country for a tour that uh, I was calling "Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started Talking." <laughs> you might be interested to know that. When, because of the pandemic, I had to cancel the tour, I decided that where I had developed the material and the presentation, and I didn't know when I would be able to deliver it, uh, I went into a local playhouse, a historic, wonderful local playhouse in New Hope, Pennsylvania, brought in a film crew, and it took us seven hours, but I recorded my entire presentation when I showed a snippet of it to CNN, they said, we will play one hour's worth, which Adam 
ended up being 43 minutes. I was thrilled, believe me. But now the entire, it's a feature length film that will be released before the holidays. And it's me explaining not only my background, my career, my ups and downs, but the changes that I saw along the way, along the lines of exactly what we're talking about now. And I explained, for example, that when I was first a guest, not even a guest host on a Philadelphia talk radio station, what what drove that, uh, that medium was good conversation. Mm-hmm. I cut my teeth on a radio station that had a doctrinaire liberal in prime time and a conservative and a libertarian, although we really didn't know what that meant. Uh, and a woman who had a deep husky voice. We didn't know her politics, but she just had a, a, a great radio manner and you loved listening to her. And Everything changed almost overnight when Rush Limbaugh was syndicated and radio stations, because AM was dying, radio stations seized Rush and talk radio, conservative talk radio, as their salvation. And that became the model. This was, you know, pre-internet. This was when we had the big three networks and major newspapers and not much else. Um, Fox News came online in 1996, MSNBC soon thereafter. They took a page out of the partisan playbook. And this, this cottage industry of polarized voices took hold. And when we were online, you know, it became Drudge's world or Slate and Salon's world. And that's, that's really where we've gone. And along the way, party leadership has been supplanted by media personalities who get to call the shots. Um, The head of the RNC today has nowhere near the power that Sean Hannity has. And and I think that people have have gone along with this and not recognized where entertainment uh, and news gathering uh, are different things and no longer overlapping. So it's a complicated picture, but change the channel is my mantra. Whatever you're watching, you can keep watching it, but you have got to pick up the clicker and go to a different channel. Where do you locate the problem though? Is it in the the noise that's coming out at people and the red meat that, that people are consuming that is making them angrier and perhaps less less civically informed and less civically inclined? Or is it in, or is it in government itself that is too receptive to to that to 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 same media incentives and trying to perform rather than legislate well it used to be that you would be elected to national office let's let's think in terms of Congress and you would pay your dues uh, we don't in this country talk about backbenchers but that's really what we were thinking and you would pay your dues and your seniority would increase and you would achieve stature over time. Uh, now you, it doesn't matter if you are uh, a freshman in fact look at look at AOC as long as as long as you can get media interest you can then become a fundraising vehicle and overnight you can become a superstar but those personalities that rise so rapidly aren't necessarily the most experienced or the most knowledgeable they're just good sound bites and they can they can stir their particular base uh, and raise money as a result. So, and, and so exactly. So where do we, where do we reform? Is the reform something that has to do with, with congressional reform to make that just, uh, whether it's in, in fundraising reform or, um, you know, starting by, I know, Ben Sass just recommended uh, had a list of uh, uh, suggested improvements for the Senate, including taking out cameras. Is that is that is that where the the solution is? Let the media be as angry and wild as as it wants to be, but make lawmakers more in line with what their job is supposed to be, rather than what it has become. Well, I'll give you a personal answer. My personal answer is, I'm trying to prove in my own way through the way I conduct myself on radio and on television, that you need not be an ideologue. You can still attract audience and you can be successful in this business. I don't know that the, the owners of the platforms yet recognize that. I think that ratings are so tied to 
firing up a base on the left or the right. It might not be an, an enormous audience, but it will be a loyal audience. And I, I think that they need to be convinced that there's market value. Not only is it the right thing for the country to get away from a polarized media, but I think that there's a market value out there because at least to my way of thinking, most people don't fall into those categories. Look, more people, according to Gallup, more people today identify as being Republican or Democrat, pardon me, identify as being independent than identify as being Republican or Democratic. But, but you know, we don't have people out there. We don't have any independents unless you consider Bernie Sanders to be an independent. But Bernie ran, you know, in the Democratic primary and was almost the Democratic nominee. Um, nobody is giving rise to independent thinking. Nobody. It, when I was, and pardon me for getting long-winded, but when I was coming of age in the 80s, people think of the 80s as the go-go conservative years under the leadership of Ronald Reagan. Some of that is true, but they don't realize that in the 80s, 60% of the House and Senate were comprised of moderates. And I say that based on a National Journal annual analysis of the voting patterns of our leaders. Today, there are none left. I mean, we look at Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins as being moderates. Well, maybe when viewed against the Republican Party today, they're moderate, but they're not moderate. There used to be so many Republican moderates in the Senate in the 80s that they had their own caucus. They called it the Wednesday Lunch Club. And they had members like uh, Bob Dole and Alan Simpson and Bob Packwood and Nancy Kassebaum, Arlen Specter and John Hines. There's no one like them left in D.C. And I think it's because to run in a primary, to run in a primary, you need to be the more progressive Democrat or the more conservative Republican. We have so many uh, congressional districts that are gerrymandered that once you win the primary or the general, your election is almost a certainty in the, the general election. Um, and again, there's just not opportunity for independence to, to break out. So there's institutional change that's necessary, but it begins with people recognizing that where they are getting their information is having a, a profound and negative impact on the country. So bottom line, it is a hearts and minds thing, first and foremost. I think people need to wake up. And until there's a recognition at home of, of what is driving this equation, things will not change and will get worse. I don't feel represented in, uh, in Washington today. Um, that's why my status is, is of an independent voter. I, I, I don't look at either of these parties as providing me what I'm looking for. And I feel like you're not alone, but at the same time, I feel like even when people don't necessarily feel represented in Washington, they're still gravitating towards these these sensational media outlets that and I, and I don't know if I necessarily I, I have a lot of cynicism around the future of of media because it just doesn't seem to me like there's a business model that will ever support um, more independent or bipartisan type of media creation. And I, I, I'm actually kind of curious to get your take on the kind, what are the kinds of conversations that you have to have with the, with the, you know, whoever they are, the powers that be and the media powers that be to, to, to justify your position that independent media actually has a place on television today. Well, I'm, I'm proving it 15 hours a week on radio. Uh, my television program is not a prime time show. I recognize that. But the platform that I have on an international cable outlet on Saturday mornings, I think, you know, to look at that is to show you can do it. I, I need others to recognize that the water is warm and they don't have to be doctrinaire <laughs> in order to establish some market share. My, I think my pessimism about this is just driven from, from a small experience that I had in trying to develop a small um, media platform a couple of years ago. I was working with a, a two talented editors, both of them with experience in, in some, some wonderful outlets. And our goal was exactly that, trying to develop an audience around the belief that there is uh, market value for nonpartisan or even anti-partisan perspectives. 
and <laughs> the moment that we 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 had to to start funding ourselves um at first we, lo- we 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 started with nice vc support and then that that dried up because algorithmic changes made political content less and less profitable online and and at that point in order to even stay afloat you needed to you know dial up the outrage and i saw a place that i was part of shaping its voice part of 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 defining its core values completely being corroded simply by by financial incentives and i worry that that people like you who have such a strong independent voice are the exception that prove the rule that you know the 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 economy is against us or maybe it's just you know human you, the, our lizard brains are against us because they we people want to hear angry loud rush limba or some people some people some people want to but you know adam i think that you're you're making exactly the point i make which is sadly the current model from a business standpoint it works it works because you, you build a, a very loyal following that is going to come back time and time again to be reinforced in their beliefs. What we need to reach are the people like Vanessa, who's just turning it off and not even watching television. <laughs> but is television really the answer, though? I, I don't know. I, I, I remain well, skeptical. But it's the same thing online. But it's the, it's mm-hmm. the same thing online. We, well, how, how about if I say it this way? Mm-hmm. Never before have we been afforded so much choice Mm -hmm. in where we go and get our information, and yet so few seem to exercise it. And Mm -hmm. what goes on today is a lot of people think, well, you know, I'm I'm on uh, via my Facebook page, my news feed is giving me all sorts of information. But they don't realize that to use Adam's word, algorithmically, somebody's got their number. You know what it's like when you're, you're looking to make a purchase. It could be a car, it could be a vacation, it could be a shoe. And all of a sudden, just because you went searching for something, now everywhere you go, you're being inundated with ads for whatever those products might be. Happens to me all the time. And yet people don't realize that's the same thing with their their news choices, that if they express an interest in a particular type of story, similarly, they will be fed information with that viewpoint. So you're on Facebook and you're reading and you're reading and you're reading, but you're not realizing that you're reading stories from a particular perspective and you're not getting the full picture. That you're being locked into the perspective. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's, and then dot, dot, dot. How do we how do we break that mold? Because if we if we agree that it's economically uh, successful and 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 shifting the industry is 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 a challenge, then outside of of people like yourself and and there are definitely some unique voices out there who are doing similar work, like I don't know David French or or, or Van Jones, but they but they are not shaping the conversation or taking over the market. And and is there is there an outside the box revolution, media revolution that needs to happen for us to actually get our 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 democracy working? There's no or silver bullet. There's just not no a silver, silver bullet. bullet. No, no. I I'm uh, I'm speaking to you, looking at my computer, and my computer has bookmarks for my constant read in, where I go for my information, so mm-hmm. that I can be knowledgeable and deliver a radio show every day. And if you were to look at the bookmarks, you're going to find things that are all over the political landscape. And I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back. This is just how I approach each program. But I wonder how many- That's your healthy diet. Yeah, it's a healthy diet. Right. And I, I just, you know, I wonder how many people are looking as I'm looking at Breitbart and the New York Post and Drudge, but also looking at Slate, Salon, and MSNBC. I go through all of these things. And by the way, I then pull out 20 links a day and I put them on my website each and every day. It's, it's, it's my personal show prep. And then I distribute those links for free in a daily newsletter. And I think my daily newsletter is rather unique because when you look at it all told, and maybe one day it'll seem 
tilted left or right, but you know, look at it over five days and you'll come away and say, wow, that's really a, a, a broad range of, of news outlets. That's what people have got to be willing to do is you know, go to bed at night having watched Chris Cuomo on CNN, but also watched a little Hannity and a little Rachel Maddow. Instead of sitting there and watching only one of them, click around and get the full perspective uh, then I think you're getting a good diet. So broadly, what's the what's what's keeping you up at night about the the state of the republic? What, and what's, what isn't? What's giving you hope? What isn't keeping me up at night? The pandemic is keeping me up at night. Concerns about the economy are keeping me up at night. Uh, the idea that um, my my uh, kids are going to go out into the workforce soon keeps me up at night. Hell, I'm in Pennsylvania. Spotted lanternflies keep me up at night. You know, I don't know if you even know what those are unless you live in one of the mid-Atlantic states that's being overrun. But it, it's almost end of times kind of stuff that's playing itself out around us. And I have concerns about the country that uh, for the, the prior 30 years that I've been paying attention, I never had to have. Well, about about the flies, I, I need to say, and, and Vanessa knows because she's my she's my flatmate. Um, I, I I shield myself from any any external threats such as that. It, 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 <laughs> yes, I. Th- if there is one thing that I can't I can't be open minded to is the <laughs> spotted lantern fly <laughs> or its brethren. Right. So I'd love to hear about your daughter. What is it like to start life during a pandemic? In 2020, well, I our our daughter was uh, launched and having a good experience in Brooklyn, and now comes the pandemic, turns uh, everything upside down. It's completely disrupted her starter job. Uh, her three younger brothers are still in various stages of their education. Who are instead of being on a college campus. Uh, you know, they're in their bedrooms, their high school bedrooms and taking courses online that I'm paying a fortune for, even though they're not having a, a conventional <laughs> college experience. One of, one of them is in grad school, uh, 3,000 miles away in a dorm adjacent to his school, still learning virtually. I mean, the whole world is, has turned upside down and I don't think it gets better until we have a, a vaccine, which probably is 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 not until next spring or summer. So this is going to go on for a while. Yeah, I have a lot of em- empathy for these kids. Because, I mean, so Me Adam and I graduated university around the 09 era. Um, and so that was entering into the workforce. In you graduated a- university around 09? Didn't I? Yeah, in the recession, oh, for sure. Oh, right, 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 right. Because you, you're American, so you don't have to do national service. Correct, correct, Right, yes. right, right. <laughs> also, <laughs> so I graduated in 09. At the peak of the recession, I was an English major and a music minor, so incredibly employable. Um, and went through a really you know, difficult period of trying to make my way. And I, find, I consider myself one of the lucky ones that kind of got on the other side. But I do feel like there's this feeling in, among my generation of kind of getting cut short and not getting having access to the kind of opportunities that our parents had access to. And now I think I'm looking at kids graduating now and I'm just wondering, like, you know, they're inheriting climate change. Not that we, you know, didn't, aren't already, but they're inheriting all of these issues and problems. I don't really, it's really hard for me to imagine what, what is going to drive them forward. And to to what extent is our country going to be able to support, or them, where are they going? These are the kinds of things that I'm that I'm wondering about. And I'm sure as a parent, you're this is a huge concern. Well, I grew up, I'm older than both of you. I grew up with a very high degree of confidence that if I worked hard, I was going to enjoy a better standard of living than the one in which I'd been raised. After all, that's the way that it was for my parents in comparison to my grandparents. And it has panned out for me. Um, the idea that our children, no matter how hard they work, are, are going to continue to progress up a you know socioeconomic ladder, um, I don't have confidence in that anymore. I definitely don't. And you know, my wife and I have worked very, very hard to provide whatever advantage we can to our kids. We've educated them well, but the future is a crapshoot. I hate to say that, but I believe it. It's funny how far we've gone from the from the tone in the the earlier columns in your book. 
was there you despite being um already embroiled in in, in at least one war you, you had you had that sense of optimism about about the 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 power of the american empire I mean, that to, came among the sausages like imagine like yeah. <laughs> with reagan and the sausages like what with reagan and the what, sausages what would that what would he what would that kid think now <laughs> that kid was that kid was um very optimistic and rightfully so about about the future but I, I look I, I hate to be repetitive what we need to do is seize control of the conversation from those who look at the national dialogue as a profit center and 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 until the the, the better for all of us overtakes the uh, uh, you know the mouse click world in which we've created then I think this continues but but I don't see it ending anytime soon so to the hope part what do you cling to not necessarily even as a commentator but as a as a father as a as a human well i guess in comparison to the rest of the globe um i'm still happy that that we've been fortunate to raise our children in this country because it's not as if i'm looking around the world i i don't think that the i don't think that the problems that we face are unique to the united states I think that in retrospect, if you go back and take a look at the Brexit vote, which was really yeah. uh, a predictor of what was going to happen in the 2016 election in the United States, uh, you see that that the, the change uh, that's taking place everywhere is is not just here. Here, it's being accentuated. We've got this accelerant being thrown on the fire by these polarized voices, but we're, we're not alone. We're not unique. And I'd still rather be in the United States than anywhere else. In, in Philadelphia. Sure, Philadelphia in particular, as long <laughs> as the Eagles are winning, and they're not. Right. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, all hope is gone. So there's one more question I want to ask. You, as I keep saying, you take pride in your independence as well as your ability to, to revise your, your thoughts and, and opinions on things. I, I wonder if there are any... <laughs> columns or statements from your past that 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 you look less than fondly on cringeworthy i believe is the word you're looking for adam <laughs> yes do you, do, is there anything that you said or, or wrote or thought in the past that that makes you uncomfortable today tons of them so for years i was not only hosting a radio program not only hosting a television program or before i had my own program appearing on other people's programs but I wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Daily News uh, columns that oftentimes were picked up in newspapers around the country. And my most recent book, which you both referenced, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, American Life in Columns, is a compilation of 100 columns that I wrote in the first 15 years after September 11. In that one time period, I published 1,047 columns. And so for my most recent book, I went back and I picked out 100 of them that were, to me, the most memorable. And instead of just publishing them, I wrote an addendum for each one of them. And most of the columns stood up, many didn't. And I would go and I would analyze a column and I would say, well, geez, that's not something that I would write today or that's no longer a viewpoint that I hold. And that was actually a large part of the enjoyment of the project was having to go back and, and be introspective about opinions that I held. There's no doubt that many of my views have changed over the 30-year time period that I've had some type of media platform. But I think I'm quite common. I think what separates me from other people is that my opinions are kind of etched in granite. You know, they're in newsprint or they're on radio tape or they're on television. And therefore, I can be held accountable for them, which is fine. But I think we all change in life. Maybe you become more progressive. Maybe you become more conservative. Maybe it's a combination based on the issue. Um, and I'm no different than everybody else. So are there things that I've, I've said and written in the, uh, in the past that I wish I could take back? Too many to list. What, for example? <laughs> uh, what column did I write? Um, well, I'll give you a great example. On the trip that I took to the Middle East, when uh, the U.S. had invaded 
Iraq. And I found myself on the Iraq-Kuwait border at a military installation. This will sound like a wacky story, and I guess it is. There were armaments, there were bombs that uh, we were being shown. And I don't know what brought it out, but someone had enormous Sharpies. And we were encouraged if we wanted to write a message on bombs that would be used in the war on terror. And there's actually a picture that was taken by a, a military photographer of me signing one of these bombs. That's very quick. It is, isn't it? Yeah, kind of crazy. And I, I remember the message that I wrote. It was, it was I, I wrote the name of someone from my county, the county where I was born and raised, who died on September 11. Actually, I wrote the name of the captain of United Flight 175. And I wrote his name and I, I you know, something like rest in peace and, and his name. Um, that bomb was probably dropped in Iraq. To my way of thinking at the time, it was all the same. Mm. Prosecuting the war on terror, fighting those folks in, in Iraq and so forth. Um, in retrospect, you know, that was ridiculous. Mm. I mean, one, frankly, had nothing to do with the other. There would probably not have been an Iraq invasion, at least not then, had there not been a September 11 attack against the United States. But one didn't follow the other. And yet, and I wasn't alone, certainly at the time, you know, to the sort of parochial American way of thinking, it was all the same, and they were all the same, and we were going to fight the bad guys. Uh, that's a regret. Mm. Also, just rest in peace on a bomb is... That's pretty pretty poetic irony as well. <laughs> True. You, you know, listening to you to describe the story made me realize I think this is more what sets you apart even than 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 what we discussed. It's because it's not just that you have you're you're willing to admit mistakes or things that you are not proud of. You 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 do it openly and you've created a brand around that ability to 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 look at yourself and your actions and your and your thought process um, with a degree of integrity and I think that's what's really difficult to establish and that's what's difficult for a lot of people who have already um, established themselves as the uh, voices of one side or of one perspective that for them it's, it becomes dangerous you have an audience that is expecting that kind of of self-reflection from you whereas if if rush limba were to come tomorrow and say like you know you know that 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 bernie sanders i mean, actually sometimes i think he did say kindly things about bernie sanders but he if he were to say like you know ditch trump um go with biden or you know anything that is out of too far out of brand that would be devastating for them. Yeah, it probably would because it's it's a very monolithic thought process that gets rewarded. You're right. Do you ever have um conversations with people that that um you know, whether in politics or in the media where you can hear a different person in your private yeah. conversation than you would on when they come on your show or in or on their own shows? Yeah, what you're asking me is do they believe what they say? And I believe that most are playing a role. You believe that from, from personal experience or yes. just? Yeah, I do. I think that, I think that some uh, and some who are household names may be, um, may be uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, I think that may they may boy I'm I'm all of a sudden tongue tied on this. <laughs> That's I my life. I think that <laughs> I think that I think that some believe what they say. I think that others are doing it with a motive to gain audience share and that's a shame. And do you think that some some of the people cuz cuz I'm sure there are a lot of incredibly intelligent people who hide behind a more one-dimensional persona and i'm sure you, you at least know some do you think people like that well, are it's a, it's a it's a safer path L listen th this is this is my whole point my whole point is that we've created we have created an industry where the best way to get ahead is not to exercise independent thinking but to rely on talking points 
That's right. that's the the real sin of what's transpiring around us. No, and and I'm I'm wondering as somebody who has those conversations with these people and and sometimes get to see some of the um some of the people when the mask falls off. I wonder if you feel that some of them are aware of the dangers that you're warning about and and are just having to put it aside for their own livelihood or have they at least rationalized themselves out of worrying about it? Don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe they've convinced themselves that uh, that, that which they're saying is, is uh, you know, the truth. Um, some, are, some are true believers. That's the word choice I was looking for. Some mm-hmm. are true believers and others are showmen. That's my bottom line. Michael Smirconish, thank, thank you. you so much for this. This is so, so fun. Thank you, guys. I, I hope it was a value. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com. Please subscribe, rate us kindly, share with your friends and your enemies. I really need to record a more permanent outro, but until then, stay sane.